0: We are thankful each one is here with us this morning. I hope you're thankful to be here as well. Our lesson this morning comes from 1 Timothy 6. As you probably may be aware, we've been working our way through 1 Timothy, and we're in the final chapter here at 1 Timothy 6. And we're going to be looking at uh, really just many things that we, we can learn from. Because in 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul offers up yet again Many things for us to consider, and the only things for us to consider, but he also really gives, he also gives some very direct commands regarding several things as well. But as brother Chris read just a moment ago, our T text is going to be verses 11 and 12. I really had a hard time deciding which one I wanted to pick, because there's all things you could focus on in chapter six, unlike other chapters of the Bible as well. But you'll notice in verses 11 and 12, as brother Chris read a moment ago, it says, But you, O man of God." We notice there he's focusing on the Christian because worldly people are not going to, when we say worldly people, we mean people who are not members of the church. We're talking about people who are involved in simple lifestyles. They're not going to do things that the Apostle Paul here is mentioning to Timothy. That's when he says, O man of God, which is a reference to not just man, male, but male and female, right? O man of God, he says, Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, Faith, love, patience, gentleness. Have you ever tried to flee from something? Have you ever tried to run away from something? When I was in high school, somehow and some way I got roped into doing track in seventh grade. I tried to flee from it. I couldn't, and I got roped into it. And I can tell you I did it one season or year, whatever it was, and that was it. But there's also things which we should try to run to, Right? Things we we want to pursue. And no doubt in life there are many things we can pursue which we would enjoy, which would be very easy for us to do. But there's also things that are challenges. He tells us here in verse eleven, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. You find the idea of pursue here is, is a constant effort to do these things. To follow after righteousness, to follow after godliness and faith love, patience, and gentleness. Sometimes when things happen, I wonder if someone has prayed for patience. When I was down with my foot, Chris texted me one day and said, Have you been praying for patience? And I said, I don't remember doing that. Because when you pray for things, you have to be ready for God to answer those things, right? He also says here in verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul talks about remaining faithful as a fight because it is it's a struggle. We don't mean it's a physical altercation but we mean we have to fight back and fight against evil each and every day and we all know full well that we cannot turn on our own televisions, we cannot open up magazines or open up certain apps on our phone without being bombarded by things which we won't know part of and we find here in verse 12 he says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. To which you were called, that's talking about the Christian, right? The Christian is called to eternal life through obedience to the Gospel and to confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That good confession is that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and we're going to put our obedient faith in Him. That's that good confession. And we continue to do that, not just a one-time action before others, but by our daily lives, we confess that we are a follower of Christ. We begin in First Timothy chapter 6. We want to begin looking at the first few verses here, verses 1 through 5. Looking at the words the Apostle Paul has toward servants and also his words concerning contentment. We find in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says here, he says, Let us, he says, Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. There are going to be times we're going to work for employers that are not Christians. In fact, if you find yourself working for a Christian as your employer, you're very, very fortunate. But in reality, in most cases, that's not going to be the situation. Large corporations are not run by members of the church. I can't think of one. But we have to do our very best, as we find here in verse 1, to make sure that we do what is right. He says in verse 1, "...let us as many... Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke, that is we are working for others, bond servants are those who are, under, who are bound to their masters to labor for them. This is not the slavery in which we think of today, though some think of it that way. He says here, count their own masters worthy of all honor. Isn't it true that most of the time you'll get further and you'll enjoy your job a little bit more if you don't talk back and give your boss a hard time? Now, don't misunderstand me. There are times that, oh, yeah, I probably would talk back and ask some very big questions. But, in general, do we just try to stir up grief in the workplace? We shouldn't. Now, granted, we understand that as a Christian sometimes, by living our life, that we may be viewed as someone who is a troublemaker. But, reality, when we are working hard and doing what we're supposed to be doing, and we're not butting our nose on other people's business, sometimes we can find that we can be a great example to others. He says here in verse 1, to count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. When our co-workers know that we are Christians, we want to make sure, and they should know, that we set forth a proper example, right? We're not the ones who are bad-mouthing our employer behind their, behind their backs. Doesn't mean we don't have concerns, but we treat one another with respect. That includes our employer, as we find here in verse 1. So no doubt it is very difficult for the Christian, as we well know today, in the workplace, just like it's always been, to be an example for Christ. But that does not give us the right to to go against and to be, we might say, a troublemaker uh, when it comes to being in our workplace. If we review that because of being a Christian, that's an entirely different story, isn't it? But we don't set out to harass people and to Be might say, unruly employees of our employers. And we find in verse 1 the reason why. So the name of God and His doctor may not be blasphemed. We want to be examples for God in the workplace by setting up for what is right. And maybe at times we just, you know, a bond server couldn't couldn't do this, but us today, if we find ourselves in a place that is only pushing us further and further away from God, Maybe time for us to pack our bags and leave. We do so in an honorable way. We take the proper steps, so if necessary, we do that. And by doing that, we find in verse 1, we're not going to cause the name of God or His doctrine, that is, His teaching, to be blasphemed. Look with me at verse 2. He says, and those who have believing masters, you I say those who find themselves, today in our context, who find themselves under the employ of Christians, he says, let them not despise them because they are brethren, that is what? Don't be harsh against them either, right? He says, Brother, rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. And these things there, it's verses 1 and 2, as we're going to see also further here in a moment. But he says here, We realize that when we work for brethren, we're benefiting one another, right? The Christian employer is benefited by having Christian employees, aren't they? Because, in theory, you don't worry about them stealing, do you? You don't worry about them going out and doing things that are going to make you or your company, or the name of Christ, for example, look bad. And so we have to think about it in those terms. Rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. We want to make sure that we have a proper attitude in the workplace. Notice also verses 3, 3 through 5, this goes right along with that. Is that he says, If anyone teaches otherwise, and does not consent through wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which, which accords with godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words which, which come, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. Now those are a lot of big words He's talking about there, right? So we want to make sure, as we find here in verse three and following, that we follow the Apostle Paul's teaching. He's an in inspired man of God, right? If anyone teaches otherwise, otherwise from what, from what he just said, verses one and two, right? Treat those who you are working for, those for whom you are underemployed, in the right way. He says, if anyone does not, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, what are wholesome words? Words are words that build people up, right? Words are actually helpful because we know there's plenty of words out there today in terms that are not wholesome. He says, "...even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ into the doctrine which accords with godliness." If anyone goes against this teaching and goes against what? The words of Christ and His doctrine, which is what? Pushing us towards godliness there in verse 3. He is proud. He's talking about the person who goes against this teaching now. He is proud, knowing nothing. Now, to be honest, we could stop right there, couldn't we? He is proud and knowing nothing. And he goes on to say what he does know, or what he is engaged in, right? But he is obsessed with disputes, with arguments over words. you ever known people who just love drama? That's what I call it. It's just drama. I, I think of people today who I don't see unless there's something going on. I think, man, that must be a boring life. Because drama, in my mind, said, my blood pressure is about to go up and I want to deal with something that I don't want to, have to deal with. Because none of us enjoy, enjoy drama, right? Whether it's bad health, whether it's job loss, but sometimes drama comes out of situations we think, why is this even a thing, right? And we find here in verse 3 and following, in verse 4 and following, we are to do what? Follow the words of God, follow the example that we have here given to us by Paul. He says here in verse 4, the person who goes against the teachings of Christ, which include what the Apostle Paul has said, and in all reality, anything else, he says, he is proud knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. Some of our best individuals he love to argue sometimes are our own brethren, aren't they? I think of individuals I've worked with in the past who Boy, give them an argument, something that just dispute, have a dispute with them, have a disagreement with them, or have just a different opinion, and off we go. And that's what he's talking about in verse four. But he is obsessed with disputes and arguments, he says, over words. He says, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. Wow, there's a slam, isn't it? Useless wranglings of men. men, meaning men who are talking about things that are just useless. Did Adam have a belly button? Who cares? Where was Garden of Eden Where was that at? Do we still have today? Who knows? The Bible doesn't tell us if it's still there or not. Does it really matter to us today that Garden is still there? No. The Bible makes it clear no one's getting in anyway, right? Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, which means they don't know the truth. You think you could stay there, they don't really know what's important either. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. This, I think, really is a hint back to verse 2, talking about how when you work for a Christian employer, you don't take advantage of them. You don't abuse their kind nature, right? He says in verse 5, what does he say? From such, withdraw yourself. In twenty twenty one, we say, stay away from them. If you're around them, get away from them. Encourage them to change their ways, to change their mindset, and if they won't, get away from them. Because what's going to happen over time, if we are not careful, they're going to suck you right in with that. And we, don't, we won't know part of that. Look next with me at verse 6 and following. We find that the Apostle Paul, he deals with, Working with, working our relationship to our employer, deals with the proper attitude towards our employer. And then in verse six and following here, he begins to talk about contentment, doesn't he? Contentment—that's interesting to talk about. Following talking about employees and employers, he says in verse six, "Now godliness with contentment is great gain. The gain is spiritual, not financial, is it? It's spiritual, it's not physical. Contentment we get is from God." We should be content as a Christian when we have obeyed the gospel and continue to follow after God. We should be content with the fact that we know we're going to heaven so long as I keep following God and keep obeying His Word. I will work hard with our families, but we will keep our focus upon God. That's what we find here in verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. We want to be content with the things that we have, not always pursuing more. It's not a crime to be wealthy. It's not a crime to work hard to provide for our families. But at some point, we have to find contentment, don't we? At some point, we have to say, this is enough. And realize that godliness must be at the forefront of our minds and the forefront of our lives. Verses 7 and 8, we are that we should do our best to be satisfied with the simple things of life. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we, sh- we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, he shall be content. Does that remind you of Matthew 6, about verse 32 and 33? He tells us that God will give us those things that we need, the food, the clothing, shelter, those types of things. But what does does Christ say in Matthew 6, verse 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you, right? Isn't that what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in in 1 Timothy 6? We want to be content. Be reminded we brought nothing to this world. He says, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Some folks today live like they're going to bring everything with them to the grave. You can bury it with you, but Pharaohs taught us, you can't take it with you from there, can you? That's why the pyramids are so very popular because it's a very unique structure, but also because all their stuff is still there. They literally believe they can take it with them. Were they wrong on that? Having food... In clothing, he says, with these we shall be content. We realize he's talking about we have things that we need in this life to survive, and that's all that we need. We find next some warnings from the Apostle Paul. It's interesting, he goes from contentment and talking about things we should be satisfied with, and we find next he warns us about wealth. In verse 9 and 10, he tells us here, But those who desire to be rich, notice there the the, that phrase, who desire to be rich, means we work because we want to be rich. Sometimes we work hard because of the employment we have, because of the job type we have, and the different things we've done. We gain wealth over the years. But those who desire to be rich, we find here, are put into a, a negative context because their focus is to be rich. Their desire is to be rich. Their desire is not God, right? That's the problem. The problem is not money, as we'll talk about later. The problem is putting money, or anything else, above God. Working hard and gaining wealth is not sinful. If that's the case, there's some men in the Old Testament here very sinful, weren't they? Because Job was very wealthy. Others were very wealthy, right? Were they in sin for being, for being wealthy? No. Because they put God first, and that was the difference. Look here with me at verse, six, verse 9 again. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation in a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition." What is he talking about there? It's not about working hard and for your families, and that's not sinful. He's talking about those who only want to be rich, and that is the focus of their lives. We have examples of that all throughout the world today, don't we? We could all of us probably name someone. Maybe we can name the same person who was clear their desire in life was just to be wealthy. And there's one thing that's clear we've seen throughout history is that money, wealth, possessions does not bring happiness. Solomon taught us that, didn't he? In the book of Ecclesiastes. He literally said he could have whatever he wanted. That's pretty impressive. But was he happy? The Bible tells us it wasn't because of wealth. We know that in the book of Ecclesiastes it tells us here is conclusion the whole matter, right? What did he say? Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what he came away with. A man who could have anything, and he says, just fear God and keep his commandments. Look at verse 9 again. Some of those who desire to be rich, who put wealth on the pedestal who seek after it above God. He says they fall through temptation and a snare. What snare and what temptations and what foolish and harmful lust can come from wanting to be wealthy? It can pull you away from your families, can't it? First of all, let's be honest. It so will pull you away from God, right? Because desire to be rich can be very time-consuming. And that is a big problem, isn't it? Time. Where we spend our time shows who we really are, isn't it? Time-consuming. He says that they fall into temptation and a snare. He says next, into many foolish and harmful lusts. And what's the result, he says, which drown men in destruction and perdition. It causes them to lose their eternal soul. In the very next verse, verse 10, Paul makes it clear. For the love of money, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. Again, it's not just money. We have seen men in the Bible who were very wealthy who are not in sin. Wealth didn't cause them to be in sin. But the love of money most certainly is, right? Even Paul mentioned that there during, during the Lord's Supper. The man who wanted to tear down his barn to build bigger. The love of money, wasn't it? But the love of money, he says, is a root of all kinds of evil. If you pull up a tree that's been in the ground very long, it doesn't have just one little root coming down, does it? No, it has a lot of little roots coming off of it, right? And that's the picture we have here. The tree being in money, when you pull it up, you see all the roots of evil just behind it. It spreads out and can touch all types of things and cause us to go away from God. He says, For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through, he says, with many sorrows. Now, no doubt the Apostle Paul could have gone into more details about the many sorrows. We can understand what that means. Because anytime we put anything above God, we're going to be pierced through with many sorrows, whether it's money or anything else. We're going to have a tough time when we put something above God. We find next, we're going to skip ahead, but keep in context with what we're talking about here. We're going to come back, but look at verse 17 and what he says as he continues to talk about wealth. He says, command those who are rich in this present age, which is, which is in this life, "...not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Those who are wealthy are to do good, and by doing such they will be pleasing to God." i got to hit myself there. Verse 17, "...the rich must not be haughty because of wealth, and they are warned not to trust in them." There are numerous examples yet again of those who have trusted in wealth to only have it be withered away. Think about how many, I going to use this example because it's probably easy for us to think about someone pretty quickly. How many athletes do you know who are now without any money? They do all kinds of small little projects because they went broke after making millions and millions and millions of dollars. How many actors and actresses are now in the same situation? They've lost all that money. See money is not something we can trust in because it's kind of like the weather. It's here one day and it's gone the next, right? We cannot but our trust Him. That's why He calls, calls it here in verse 17, Uncertain riches. But we are to trust instead, He says, in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God gives us what we need and we can enjoy those things, which are no doubt the simple things in life. Look at verses 18 to 19. He says, Let them do good, talking again about the wealthy, for the rich, let they, let they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Now, when I look at verse 18, we understand he's talking about them sharing, no doubt, some of their wealth. But do you think it goes beyond that? I think it does. I don't think he's just talking about wealthy. I think he's talking about giving us some of your time. I'm also convinced that we were have some in our, in our brotherhood today. Do you feel they put enough in the plate, they don't do anything else. And that's not right, is it? We can't buy or pay for our service. We still have to be laborers for the Lord. And he says here, Willing to share, verse, verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now think about this for a second. He's talking about individuals. But here's a thought. Can we apply that to the congregations as a whole today? Congregations, you have a wealth of money stored up. What should we be doing with it? The church and individuals should not interpret lay by and store as lay by and hoard, should we? We are to be those who give freely, whether we're talking about individuals or as the church. Years ago, when I was still trying to gain some funds to go to preaching school, I went to visit one congregation, and there were two congregations in that town. And they said, now, when you go there, you make sure they help you. Okay, I'm not sure how you make sure they help you, but okay. But he said, well, they have a lot of money. And everybody here knows it. They need to be using it. Did I know that for a fact? No. But it's sad they had a reputation, isn't it? That tells you something. We don't want to be a congregation that's being remembered as one who hoards, but as one who helps those and helps worthy causes. We want to be just like the wealthier mentioned here, those who are ready to give and are willing to share. Verses 18 and 19. Next, we want to jump back here a little bit and look at what should the Christian pursue instead of pursuing wealth? We're pursuing the desire to be rich. We find verses 11 through 15, it says, "But you, O man of God, please these things. What is that? The desire to be rich. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Can you imagine that thing when say, walk up to you and say, Why are you going after that stuff? That can't help pay for your retirement. What is the Christian's retirement anyway? It's our, we build it up by our faithfulness to God, aren't we? If we go back to Matthew 6, the Bible again, Christ himself reminds us, See, first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things If we ask you, when we put God first, He will take care of us, right? Yes, we want to make sure we work hard for ourselves, provide for ourselves and for our families, but we cannot allow that to become our only focus. We must pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, Things which are noble, which are good in the sight of God, which are pleasing to Him. And then in verse 12, we must make sure we fight that good fight of faith. That we do not become one of those who are faithful for one week and we don't see Him again for a year. That's not faithfulness. We must be those who are faithful beyond those special days of the year which we try to come and be a part of the Lord's church. We must be faithful always. That's part of fighting the good fight of faith. And when we do that, we find here in verse 12, We will lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We remain loyal to God and fight that fight of faith we will have eternal life. We will have heaven as our home. Verse 13, he says, I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. What the Apostle Paul just say? You keep these words and you remain faithful to God until Christ comes back, is what he says there in verse 13 and 14, isn't it? He says there in verse 13, he says, "...to urge you in the sight of God," which means he is calling God as his witness, basically, right? "...who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless unto our Lord, Jesus Christ appearing." which He will manifest in His own time, who, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To remain faithful, faithful until Christ comes back. There is no other option, is there? We want to remain faithful to God. We want to make sure that we do all we can to have heaven as our home. We find in verse 16, He says, "...who alone has immortality." Dwelling in an approachable, in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and everlasting power. Amen. We remain faithful to the very, very end. Which means until Christ comes, comes back or to our heart just gives out, we remain faithful to God. We remain faithful to Him. There is no retirement age of being a Christian. We are faithful till death. We find in verses 20 and 21 where to stay the course and avoid worthless and empty ideas. He says, O Timothy, guard what is committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. I love how he words that. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. There's a lot of smart people who say a lot of dumb things, don't they? There's a lot of smart people who have a lot of education, sir, in the secular world or in the Christian college world, if you so called. And yet they come out with ideas or in direct contradiction to the Word of God. What does the Bible tell us to do? To stay away from those things. Rebuke them, warn them. If they won't repent, you stay away from them. Because no matter how smart someone may be, they can still lead you straight to the gates of hell, can't they? We avoid those things. Guard what is committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. By professing what? Those things falsely called knowledge. They have strayed from the faith. Some lessons for us today. We must have a proper mindset about money it is essential for us because it influences so many different aspects of our lives we see this in, in verses 6 through 8 and also verse 10 as well right verses 9 and 10 as well money like anything worldly we love can ruin us anything we put above God can and will ultimately ruin us money does not elevate you and the lack of money does not make you inferior to anyone else the only it makes us better in the eyes of God is if we have obeyed Him or if we haven't. Obedience means we are approved of the sight of God. The failure to obey means we're not approved of the sight of God. What others think about us, regardless of wealth, the, what we have or what we do not have does not matter. Wealth does not elevate who we are in this life. and it definitely doesn't elevate us in the sight of God. God condemned the righteous or can He condemned the, the wealthy and the rich just like He condemned the poor. He was also out, out of step with Him. Wealth does not change us at all in, in terms of being spiritually ready. Our second thing we want to consider is we must keep the faith. We must, as we saw in verses 13-14, to 14, to keep the words of Christ, right? To obey His words. And we must guard our faith from time wasting disputes and to keep the faith, keep the truth of God's Word in our hearts. The principles we have seen today are simple to read, but can be a struggle to always apply, can't they? Because money is a very powerful thing. The idea of having enough of it can be a worrisome thing. But that's why we have to go back to the Word of God, don't we? It reminds us not to worry about those types of things. To put our faith and our trust in God. And we have seen time and time again that God has always provided for the faithful, right? The psalmist says he has been young, he has been old, yet he has nothing the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread, which means he has never seen God walk away from the righteous. Even Job, he was tested by God. or Excuse me, I should rather say God allowed him to be tested by Satan. But you know Job's biggest mistake during all that? He thought God had left. But he was reminded in the very end that God didn't leave, hadn't he? The Bible tells us as a result of his faithfulness, despite his, his struggles as a result of him remaining faithful to God, God restored to him or gave to him more things in the end than he had in the beginning, right? He had more children he had more cattle and livestock than he had ever before. God always takes care of the faithful. So let us be pleasing to God by making these things a focal point in our lives, to have the proper mindset about money, about our employers, and to remember, we must keep the faith no matter what comes down the road. We must keep our eyes upon Christ. This morning, as you think about these things, we can help you or encourage you in any way. You can come forward now. as we going to be sing the song that's been selected.